here we are, we're um, going to be- begin this new series, uh, Conversations with Jesus, and um, we're just going to be uh, looking at, dropping into, grabbing some of the conversations that Jesus had as he went about his ministry, and trying to place ourselves in, in the conversation and, and see how we'd react to uh, what, what is being said, see what the implications of Jesus saying are on our lives and, and then maybe as, as we interact with that conversation and how it shapes us, that would also kind of interact in a way that we would then go and, and, and be shaped to have conversations with other people in a, in a, in a similar way. Today we're dropping in on a conversation that we've called uh, a scandalous conversation with an outrageous outcome. Us uh, preachers, pastors, whatever, like to have these, you know, over-the-top um, headings just to make you think something crazy is going to happen, and, and it does. So it takes place between Jesus, he's an emerging um, holy man of the Jews, a rabbi who's, who's coming onto the scenes, and, and amazing things are being said about him around the place. Uh, and, and, and between him and this uh, Syrophoenician woman who, who is a desperate mum, but she's also a deplorable, she's a, is a person with deplorable status. And Jesus, true to form, uh, though rather in an arresting way, rather in a, a kind of a confronting a way, uses the conversation that he has with her to, to go after her heart. And in the same way goes after our hearts as we read the conversations. Hearts that must uh, overcome uh, the sensibility of being scandalised before she can, before we can, uh, have our worlds healed by uh, the the help that we perceive in Jesus. And as we do, we find there uh, abundance of outrageous, unexpected grace as we as we stay in the conversation this Syrophoenician mum uh, becomes an unlikely and unexpected model of how to approach a conversation with Jesus who will who who just often who will scandalize our hearts before uh, we we step into grace so let's pray and we'll, and we'll, and we'll get to work our father God our hearts they thirst for healing in our lives and in the lives of those who we love. And often uh, it's that desperation that rids us of our pride, that, that, that finds us at the feet of Jesus. And today uh, we dive into your inspired word to us. And as we, as we hear this conversation, as we, as we see this picture before us, would we be neither hardened or crushed uh, by what we find there, but would you write your grace unto our hearts that we might uh, know your grace, that we might... Uh, come into your healing. Well, uh, we're going we're gonna to approach this conversation by looking firstly at the, at the context uh, in which we, we find it set and then we're going to look at the scandalous nature of her approach uh, to Jesus and then we're going to look at the scandalous nature of Jesus' response to this woman and, and in and amongst all of that, hopefully you can pull out some implications for us and, and then we're, we're going to finish off by looking at the outrageous outcome and, and I think that's kind of like a good framework for us to work from and we'll see how we go. Our passage uh, begins by Mark telling us that Jesus arose and, and, and went away to the region of Tyre and, and, and Sidon and 
Upon arriving, he entered into a house and he didn't want anyone to know he was there. And then with a phrase that's kind of pretty pregnant with meaning, Mark tells us, yet he couldn't be hidden, uh, which, is, uh, which is as much about his geographical location as it is about his messianic identity. In the context of Mark's Gospel, Jesus has just finished a, a in, in the beginning of chapter 7, he's just finished this toe-to-toe uh, conversation, this heated debate, if you like, with the Jewish religious leaders around what makes a person clean? What makes a person acceptable to, to themselves come into a conversation with God, to, to, to be able to worship, to be able to pray, to be able to participate in appropriate uh, religious life and relationship with God? The Jewish leaders have been scandalized themselves by the way Jesus' disciples, they failed to adhere uh, strictly to the traditions of their elders. Rules and regulations that you perform to avoid becoming uh, unclean, or unworthy to practice or to participate in, in the religious life of Israel. They failed to wash their hands. Who knows where these disciples have been and what they've touched and yet they, they fail to wash their hands when they eat. Their approach, the Pharisees' approach to Jesus is, how could you possibly be uh, what you claim to be? How could you possibly be a man of God, uh, uh, let alone a Messiah, when your disciples uh, fail uh, to participate or, or, um, or actually, actually participate in conduct that makes them unclean? They, they don't do any of these rituals that surely, you know, if you're a man of God, you would know we, we need to do. How can you... How can you be of God and yet move amongst the unclean? Move, be comfortable with what's unclean. Be uncomfortable and, and be comfortable with what prohibits them from being religiously acceptable. What makes them unfit for God? There's, there's something wrong here with you, Jesus, if you're okay with that. Jesus' reply uh, to this is stunning and scathing. And he announces to the crowd... Uh, that externalities do not make a person unclean or clean. Rather, internalities, most specifically the conduct, the, the, the condition of your heart. He says in chapter 7 there, what comes out of a person's heart is a more accurate indication of who is fit for life in the presence of God. These rules and these rituals were originally given as visual aids. Living prompts to cause you to stop and think uh, as you approach God, before you approach God, am I worthy? No. But there is a temporary provision of grace through which you acknowledge that, through which you demonstrate that via the aid, via the ritual, via the sacrifice, whatever it is, and then you proceed. The Pharisees had failed to learn the lesson, the heart of the lesson. They saw the aids as the means. But now worse than that, they fail to see Jesus as the one who is here to replace all these aids with a lasting and permanent means of approaching God. They fail to see that Jesus is the great heart transformer, the one who can, who can, who can deal with the heart and make you right to be in the presence of God. Well, Mark tells us that after this confrontation, Jesus uh, does something that, that just would drive these religious leaders nuts. He further scandalising them, further causing offence around his actions. He heads off into the region of Tyre and, and Sidon or Sidon. 
to, up to the north of what is you know, Galilee, what is the traditional land, the traditional borders of Israel that the Jews called home, uh, the place where God spoke to them, blessed them, the place where they have their special uh, covenantal relationship with God. Curiously, Jesus intentionally goes to take some time out in a pagan environment where absolutely everything about that place makes you unclean. You step across the border from Galilee into the region of Tyre and, and, and Sidon and you are, you are unclean. The region of, of Tyre and Sidon holds no affection in the hearts of any Jew. Not only is it a, is it a pagan place full of pagan religion and culture, uh, Tyre and Sidon was a place from which, um, you know, Jezebel, you're probably familiar with Jezebel's name, but she was a, a, a Phoenician princess. She was the daughter of the king of, of Sidon and she married King Ahab, king of Israel in the 8th, 9th century. And she brought and introduced into Northern Ireland, into Northern Ireland, into Northern Israel. She probably brought in Northern Ireland too, I don't know. <laughs> she didn't. Northern Israel, uh, worship of Baal permanently corrupting uh, the nation's worship and fidelity to God. There's no love between uh, the Jews and this region. Furthermore, Tyre is a more wealthy, a powerful, a godless oppressor of the Jews, often enjoying comfort and wealth while the Jews struggle and struggle. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says of Tyre that they are the Jews' bitterest enemies. The region and its people are considered innately unclean, utterly pagan and without hope. It's not exactly the way to smooth things over with the Pharisees. It is, however, a good place to go if you don't want to be bothered by them. You can get some time in with your disciples and you can teach and you can talk and and I think Jesus is planning to deliver a powerful statement that the gospel of God in Jesus is not limited by religious small categories of ritual, of practice, of place or heritage. Jesus' trip into this region of Tyre and, and, and Sidon might be to get some clean air between him and the Pharisees. However, he goes nowhere without a reason and he is heading up there for a conversation. But what this lets us know is that God's grace is for all people It comes to them as they are. Jesus moves intentionally into this pagan region. It doesn't wait for them to become good good enough. It doesn't wait for them to become religiously or morally appropriate enough. It meets them on their soil. It meets them where they are. It meets them in their hopeless despair. It exposes their need for rescue and warrants them with a faith that receives grace. Well, if Jesus had hoped to just slip quietly uh, unnoticed into this region, it doesn't work. No doubt because of the, the, the proximity, that they, they border each other, Tyre and, and Galilee. Word about Jesus uh, had made its way into this region. News of Jesus would have already spread up into this pagan land about who he was. He, he's, he's a different kind of cat to your normal Jewish people. He, he, he moves with unrestrained compassion towards people. He, he heals. He, he ministers to people. Well, news of, of Jesus' arrival in this land, while, while shocking, would begin to trend. 
Is he really here? Has a holy man, uh, this holy man of Israel, really come into this pagan region? What, 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 is he, what is he thinking? And his news travels. It would reach and come to the, the ears of our desperate but deplorable mum living, I imagine, I picture her, speculation, living in her seaside villa overlooking the Mediterranean Sea where she runs a successful merchant's exchange where, where she engages with traders and, and hears all the conversations on the wires. She's connected and she's respected. It doesn't take long for word to reach this Syrophoenician woman that Jesus, the one that she's heard so much about, is actually in their region. The one who she's heard stories about. A man who, who forgives sin. A man who heals the sick. A man who's a friend of sinners and, and pagans and tax collectors. The gospel, she's heard about this man and she's been thinking over it. For all her wealth and for all her comfort, her world actually knows no joy. Her daughter has lived a life of affliction. Both Mark and Matthew tell us that, that, that her daughter is possessed by an evil spirit or, or a demon. And then immediately, upon hearing the news, this mum makes her way to Jesus. But she would know in every way, according to custom and according to the prejudice of the Jews, that she is both unclean and unwelcome to approach a devout Jewish man let alone one considered to be a rabbi, let alone one considered who, who claims to be a messiah, everything about her disqualifies her from, from getting an audience with Jesus. Yet, she doesn't care. She has a need in her life that all her wealth, all her reputation, all her connections, all her good standing cannot heal, cannot make whole. So need, so, so need and hope drive this pagan Gentile woman toward Jesus. And she bursts into the home where Jesus is just quietly sitting around, perhaps continuing a conversation with his disciples about what makes a person clean or unclean, what, what allows a person to come into the, the presence of God in an appropriate manner. And she falls down at his feet and begins to beg and plead with Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Mark tips us off to the, to, the, to, the, to the cause, if you like, to the means behind the desperation of this mother's heart with the phrase, little daughter. It doesn't refer to her daughter's size. It doesn't refer to her daughter's age, but rather that her daughter is much loved that her daughter is precious to her. You know, often parents with kids that have special needs form richer relationships based around sacrifice. And we marvel at the unique bond that they have. It is the desperate love of a mother that drives her to the feet of Jesus, a place where she has no social, no cultural, uh, no religious invitation to be. But she doesn't care. And once she's there, 
She is there for the end game. Falling down at Jesus' feet is not merely an act of of respect to Jesus, which it is. It's also an act of deep grief. And she begins to beg. And the way Mark uses this word beg is that it is a continuous, it's a present, continuous, ongoing action. She begs and she begs and she pleads. In Matthew's account uh, of this moment, in Matthew 15, we read that she actually came crying out, O Lord, Son of David, and that the disciples urged Jesus to send her away. She just won't stop. But she will have her audience with Jesus. It's a scene that is both touching and scandalous. Her presence offends every sensibility of her Jewish onlookers. She's a Gentile woman from a resented and privileged uh, class of foes. Her, her posture strips her of all her pride and exposes her need that her privilege and her power has not delivered. But rather, or her passion and her persistence, her love for her daughter is compelling, is touching. Her approach to Jesus is one of bold humility that takes no security in her position but just risks it all on the news, on the gospel that she has heard about this man. What a model. What a picture of how it is to approach Jesus. Bold humility. So what is Jesus' response to this woman, to her bold humility, down in the dust begging for help? Well, of our contemporary audience and the time is scandalised by her bold approach to Jesus. Our modern minds are scandalised by Jesus' treatment and reply to this desperate woman. Matthew actually tells us that Jesus didn't even answer her with a single word at first and that it was his disciples that have to implore him to do, to do something. In our passage here, Mark records Jesus' less than compassionate response to her. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Where? Where is our compassionate Jesus? Where is the friend of sinner? Where? Where where is the Jesus who just in the chapter before saw a great crowd of people on the sea and had compassion on them and, and, and because they were like sheep without a shepherd and fed them abundance of bread. This passage is actually bookended by two incredible feedings of bread to the children of Israel and here she is begging for a crumb from the table of grace. Jesus has just referred to this woman who begs him for his help as a dog. Is Jesus just hurling an insult at this desperate woman? Or is there more to what Jesus says, what Jesus waits to see? Without doubt, Jesus' words can't be anything in the culture uh, than, than insulting. And it's not without precedent that Jesus is deliberately scandalous, conjuring up scandalous pictures with his words. 
He's just affronted the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites to their faces, challenging their, uh, their understanding of their traditions. And now, as this woman approaches him, he lays down another stumbling block for someone to grapple with as they seek him, as they approach him, as they seek his help. You're a dog at the table of God's mercy. The term dog is a familiar and common expression that devout Jews, the Jews in general, used to describe Gentiles. Dogs are not like our domestic dogs now. And even if they were, it's still a harsh response. Dogs were scavengers. They lived on the outskirts of town in the tips. They fed on dead animals. They were the epitome of what it is to be unclean and become a metaphor for a Gentile. They're unclean. They have no place at the table of God. We need to allow the scandalous reply of Jesus to stand and, and emphasize that if you wish to approach Jesus, you must be prepared to deal with your heart being scandalized before you can apprehend his grace. Ligon Duncan says, can you imagine, can you imagine if this conversation happened today? Jesus would have gone viral in the worst of ways. There would have been an infinite thread of rage. Rage tweets about his heartlessness, his raciousness, his misogyny. However, there is more to Jesus. And there's always more. And if we are able to, to stay in... We have lost the capacity to stay in conversations these days. We're outraged. Instantly. Storming off. How could you possibly even have a different idea to me. That's the kind of mindset that will not allow you to stay engaged with a conversation to Jesus. There's more to Jesus' reply than an insult. And the key to perceiving this is the clue that he, that he threads into his response. Jesus tips her off. But even though in this religious culture and atmosphere there's no room for her, there will be grace on offer. But she must receive it on his terms. Jesus invites her to approach him in a certain way, to approach him on his terms. In his answer, Jesus affirms uh, what is a biblical priority uh, that God has of offering salvation, his blessing, uh, his help, his grace, first to the Jews. We just see that in Scripture. But not exclusively. The word first here, in this sentence, first to the children, implies that even dogs, even Gentiles, have some ray of hope. But this woman must wait patiently for grace, must have grace come to her on Jesus' terms, not on hers. First she is confronted with the reality that she is unworthy to be there. And not simply because she is a Gentile, a metaphorical dog, but because she is a sinner, literally unclean. And Jesus uses the metaphor not to insult her, but to challenge her heart. Do you, do you, how do you see us? We know how culture sees you, but how do you see you? How do you understand that you approach a holy God? This is a, this is a theological question, not a cultural racist insult. It's a question of how do we approach God? How do we approach Jesus? And now we see the second surprise unfold. Rather than being offended by Jesus' remarks, she's emboldened. She sees Jesus' comments. She sees Jesus' metaphor for what it is. A crack 
through which light warms her heart, encourages her heart. This woman understands that Jesus is placing an invitation to keep coming, to keep coming closer, to continue to discover more and to keep the conversation alive. And she does so in the most remarkable way. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She perceives it's not a cultural insult, but a theological metaphor about the human heart, the human condition. No one, no one likes their faults uh, being pointed out to them. No one enjoys hearing about our weaknesses, our issues. But if we wish to come to Jesus and receive his help, we must come through the offence of being called out as sinners, as not deserving help. We must allow the scandal of our hearts to take place. If your heart has not been scandalised by this, you will not understand grace. You just won't. This woman becomes a model of how this is done. Her reply, yes, Lord, is an indication of her understanding and her, and her confidence, her faith in Jesus as one who can heal her word. Matthew uh, has her using the Messianic title, Son of David. She's the only person uh, in Mark's Gospel to perceive Jesus this way, as God's saving grace to an unclean, undeserving world. She shows great humility in, in her answer. She neither takes offence at Jesus' remarks by becoming embittered, outraged, stamping her feet and storming off and saying, do you, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've been through? Do you know what I've had to endure? I'm a good and loving, sacrificial mother. You owe me grace. She does not argue her case and ask for special treatment. Nor does she just accept or take his dismissal and and sulk off in crushing shame and overwhelming unworthiness. She knows she cannot insist on God's mercy and does not take offence when Jesus tells her so. However, she does not allow the scandal of her heart to respond with a a snippy kind of you-owe-me attitude, nor does she cut herself off uh, from Jesus' grace by thinking, oh, I'm I'm just too unworthy to receive anything at all, as if she's outsinned the measure of grace that lies in Jesus. She stays at Jesus' feet, her head lifted from the floor, from the dust. Lord, I'm not asking for what I deserve based on my goodness or merit, but I'm asking for what I don't deserve based on your goodness and your merit. And I need it now. A beggar. A beggar for grace. Tell me something. How do we approach Jesus? How do we come to him? How do we come to him in prayer? How do we come to him in conversation? in seeking his help when we are at the end of our rope? What is the posture of our heart? If we come to him with a sense of pride or entitlement, not prepared to have our hearts examined first, we cripple grace. If we come to him with a sense of unhealthy unworthiness, 
We, we insult grace. This woman stands as a model of faith that warrants Jesus' grace. She perceives that she's unworthy to ask for anything. She perceives that she is a dog. Why does she stay? Why does she press on in this conversation? Because as she perceives her unworthiness, she also perceives at the same time the mercy and the grace of God that God offers us in Jesus. She gets it. It's what we call the warrant of faith, realizing that you are far more wicked than you ever believed, but at the same time far more loved and accepted than you ever dared dream. That's the warrant of faith. Understanding your unworthiness and your sin and at the same time, as that rises in on you, at the same time, that you are far more loved, that you are far more accepted than you ever dared dream in this man, in this person, Jesus. Grace beyond the scandal, grace beyond the offence. How do you come to Jesus? On your terms? With your demands? Or on his terms? We will turn to our own gods of our own making. We will, we will, we will, we will make a Jesus of our own making if we sit with the offence. One who will not offend us because we, we convince ourselves that, that we are special, that we are truly worthy of God's grace and help. Only when we are truly scandalized to humbling ourselves do we genuinely perceive God's help, God's, God's grace ah, in Jesus. And he said to her, for this, for this perception, for this understanding, for this, for this quality of faith that you have, for this statement... May you go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in a bed and the demon gone. It's a lovely conclusion to the story, but it's an outrageous one. The power and the blessing of God's kingdom, his salvation and grace cannot be limited to, to a narrow uh, understanding, to the, to the narrow dom- dominion of, of, of merely Israel, of some special privileged people. But it will encompass all people who approach Jesus in a way that warrants faith and unleashes grace. The healing of this Gentile's daughter stands as an outrageous paradigm shift of the scope of God's grace. It's not, grant, it's not, uh, it's not granted, or it's not withheld on the basis of of externalities, your goodness or your brokenness, but on the condition of your heart. How is it that you perceive Jesus? How is it that you move towards Jesus? Has it been broken of its pride? It is only when humility warrants it that grace is obtained. How do you approach Jesus? How would you have reacted to Jesus if he had put a stumbling block in your way like this? Humility that leads to repentance, that's the acknowledgement of our need, of our sin, is a confident joy in the greatness of the love of Jesus for us. This is the soil of saving faith. This is the soil that nurtured this woman. This is an appropriate way to approach a conversation with Jesus. Tell me something. As we understand that, as we understand how we approach Jesus, then how, how do we approach other people? 
How do we have conversations with people about grace? Is it about our experience? One last thing. Going to get this one for free. It's not really part of this sermon, but it could be a sermon in itself, but I, I couldn't help but notice it. Where there is a praying mother or a praying parent, there is hope. This little girl has a whole life restored because her mum just persisted in prayer. She's, she's, this conversation with Jesus she's having is a prayer for her daughter. Hey, mums, dads, never give up on any child. Never give up on anyone. Jesus never gives up on anyone. Persistently goes after their heart. Persist in prayer. Where there's a praying mum or a dad, there is hope. Where there is humility to sit with our hearts being scandalised, there is the offer of saving faith an incredible, outrageous grace. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts sit before you. Our hearts know our unworthiness and yet that's not what shapes us. We're shaped by your grace, by your, by your love toward us children accepted and loved by a loving father and we know the journey of 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 of, of being scandalized by your grace lord i pray this morning that if anyone still sits with the question of why must i come to jesus this way that they would just push with that conversation not be offended and not be crushed but continue to allow Jesus uh, to just minister to their soul. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.